Hello and welcome to Something Who podcast, episode 31. Earlier this year, Jeremy Bentham guested on the podcast, and it was one of our most listened to episodes. And I've been thinking of how I might invite him back when I read his article in the recent TARDIS magazine about how he'd interviewed all nine of Doctor Who's original series producers for the Doctor Who magazine winter special 1983-4. And in the course of reading that article, it occurred to me that Jeremy had met and interviewed many people associated with Doctor Who in the years before the convention circuit cemented their anecdotes into a series of set pieces. And and of course, uh, a number of people who, who are no longer with us. And when you met them, Jeremy, of course, it was it was a lot closer to the events they were recalling. So for this episode, I asked Jeremy if he'd think about a few of the people he'd met in you know earlier times and, and think about what it was what it was like to meet them and what he discovered. So, hello, Jeremy, and welcome back to Something Who. Hello, Richard. Glad to be here. Could be an inter- interesting hour. Yeah, indeed. We had such good feedback about the episode you were on, so it's great to have another chance to talk. Well, it was, it was wonderful to get all the feedback as well from the TARDIS article that uh, you've just referenced. Because yeah. um, it was one of those things where the editor, Robbie Dunlock, came out of the blue and said, well, you know, we'd like you to do something, but we're not certain what. And uh, after a little bit of frantic head scratching, I thought, well, one of the things possibly I can do to provide something edifying for the, the large number of fans that there are around these days of, of, of incredible vintages and youth is to try and give an insight into some of the people just like the the, the TARDIS article who, who are no longer with us and people out there are thinking well you know what were they like what did they contribute to Doctor Who and what were the sort of traits and personality things that you encountered along the way that made them such fascinating people to both interview and to talk with, and the, the the events that they got associated with in the in the early days of a fandom, which I suppose you know, for a lot of people is uh, anything that happened sort of pre nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. Okay. So if we dive into that, I think the first person you identified was Patrick Troughton. Oh, absolutely. In a way, that was a bit of a no brainer because you know Pat passed away in nineteen eighty seven. Yeah. Uh, he really didn't do much in the way of conventions mm. before, well, he, I don't think he did any before 1983, when I think it was John Pertwee, the, the, the famous anecdote that um, Pertwee yeah. got delivered with a whole set of free luggage from uh, somebody looking to promote luggage, and Pat Troughton said, you know, do you often get stuff like that? And he said, oh, all the time. Uh, which I think was the bit that changed uh, Pat Trout's mind about uh, about sort of opening up and coming out to to the public. Yeah. But for myself, I had actually encountered Pat Trout and even earlier than 1983 because his son David David Troughton mm. went to the same school that I went to in Edgware. Ah. Uh, David was in the sixth form in the, in, in the drama group, and at the time I was a squitty little lowest form of life, the, the first form. <laughs> And uh, at, at the end of the year, they nearly all the school nearly always asked somebody of, of notable celebrity to come along and, and give an address to to the school. And in, in 1967, the, the one they chose was was Patrick Troughton, who who came along. Wow! And his I'm really scratching the memory now, but his talk was something like all of the world is a stage. 
and it was meant to be a bit of a sort of motivational kick up the backside to us all to think you know what are we going to do with ourselves when we leave school mm-hmm. because his point was and I've linked I've since found out it's it is based on a quote by I think a French poet that each person is actually three people it's what they think they are it's what other people think they are and it's what therefore you truly are mm-hmm. and it was quite a I wish I could remember more about exactly the text that he said but it's it sort of you know you, you put out this image this impression of yourself that uh, that, that you think is is, is 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 the personality you'd like to project how other people see it, that, that 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 can sometimes be the difficult bit to discern depending how open or challenging people are back and somewhere in between those two the as the feedback comes in and goes back back out again uh, you might be able to discern the sort of person that's actually in there mm-hmm. and it was only when i started getting much 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 more interested in 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 the fan side of Doctor Who, you know, wanting to learn more about the, the program and the actors who was in it. And I sort of remembered this thing about Pat Troughton that he was, that you, you very rarely ever got to, to meet the real Pat Troughton. Yeah. Uh, he was actually incredibly gifted at presenting to the world a, a series of, of images of himself. And mm. he was otherwise very, very, very private indeed. And, um, the best illustration of that I can I can give you, Richard, is that at the nineteen eight the, the big nineteen eighty three convention they did in America, I think it was the Spirit of Light convention in Chicago. Right. Yeah. Trout was one of those. He, he you know he was new to the to, to the convention circuit, and he got a little bit sort of antsy about the idea of just spending a lot of his downtime just upstairs in the in this massive green rooms, you know, swilling back endless quantities of wines and spirits. And he actually decided, and I, th- I think it was the Sunday evening, so the convention was winding down, but it was a lot of people still not, hadn't gone home to the Monday. Mm-hmm. He just went down in the lift into to the main lobby and sort of sat there in his Doctor Who persona, projecting himself as Doctor Who, because his attitude was so much more, you know, people don't want to see me, I'm boring, but what I do want to see is the second doctor and uh, again the, the matching was there because you know people just drifted in and sort of wandered over and next thing you know he had, he had a you know quite a huge audience in the lobby not necessarily just doing autographs and things mm. but just talking to them about you know any sort of doctor who uh, oh don't remember much about that little bit vague but certainly uh, you know give them that, that sort of chat and that's a fascin that's, that really is a fascinating skill because it, yeah. it was diverting attention away from the Patrick Troughton person and more towards this uh, what people would call the elusive Troughton, the one that's a little bit mercurial but doesn't answer things directly but answers it indirectly which was sort of what I'd heard about in 1967 and I saw very clearly in 1983 being demonstrated to those people who were just gathered around him in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency it was Mm. a fascinating experience Yes, and I mean it's it's really comparatively recent. I think that I mean particularly, I guess, the biography that his son Michael wrote, but you know one or two other things as well that we've started to to hear more about Patrick. Also, an interesting interview with David, I think, on the Enemy of the World special edition. But but yeah, I mean only in the last few years. It's certainly, as far as I'm concerned, his um, his character seemed quite opaque for a long time. Well, we didn't think for ages when, when when the Appreciation Society started that we would ever, ever, ever get to see Patrick Troughton himself because 
he would always decline invitations for interviews he would always decline any invitations to conventions and he just you know resigned to the fact it was never ever going to happen and the thing that changed that, and certainly a huge whack across the faces in my concern, was when the National Film Theatre decided they were going to hold this event in October 83, which was before the Spirit of Light event, uh, at the National Film Theatre called Doctor Who the Developing Art. And this had come about from, the idea of it came from the two writers who did that uh, famously um, oh, yes. cryptic tome, the <laughs> Doctor Who the Unfortunate. <laughs> Next. Yeah, uh, they were the, the, uh, one of them. Uh, I think it was John Tullock. Uh, yeah. he, he knew a uh, chap at the BFI, British Film Institute. Uh, his name was Richard Patterson, who was one of their sort of directors of programming, and with an idea to thinking, oh, we might sell a few more copies of the books if we did some sort of event around it. Right. Persuaded the the powers that be at the BFI what a great idea it would be to devote a, a whole weekend to to Doctor Who programming, which was an incredibly good idea because you were still at era when repeats and uh, mm. screenings of episodes were very, very rare. You know, you'd, you'd had the, the five faces of, of Doctor Who season, but there was yeah. still so much else that sort of hadn't happened by then. Sure. And the idea that the BFI, with its amazing ability to circumvent all the union problems and all the contractual problems that would prevent you from doing whole-scale broadcasting of these episodes said well yes we think it's a damn good idea as well it'll do our hopefully our membership no end of good so yes we'll sign up to it and i think it was about april or may that they sort of greenlit it and got a bit of a budget to to do it mm -hmm. and it was but it was sometime in the summer when they said oh well, you know we're hoping to get patrick trout <laughs> to be quite honest my, my my opinion was well you know good luck with that one you, you wouldn't be the first one to to attempt it but you know no yeah. attempts about don't whiz on their fire or anything like that they're very enthusiastic to do something about it and his name was nearly always on that, that guest list they wanted to have, particularly as we started refining down the you know, the programmes that we were going to show, try and do something from each of the Doctors. And the big one for, I think it was the Saturday, was going to be to be the War Games mm -hmm. in its entirety, never ever wow. been, been seen before in the UK since its first transmission. And they were still saying, yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, we think we're getting some, somewhere positive with Pat. Uh, again, you know, Total disbelief because I didn't. I didn't know at the time that you know Pertwee and uh, uh, Troughton had had these discussion about opening himself up. Yeah. And um, I think we went there on the Sunday day two, and myself and a few others who had to be there quite early on to try and get things set up, look through the running orders. Mm. Just nipped into the NFT bar to grab a, a, a cup of coffee and, and read through everything. And suddenly the terrace bar door opens and you know you could have cut the air with a, with a blade it installs uh, Troughton with, uh, with with Sheila Troughton and looking around thinking you know hello does any, is anybody going to greet me so I thought well I better go up and say something <laughs> and probably did the best thing you can do with Patrick Troughton say would you like to sit down and have a drink totally unfazed me he said oh yeah whiskey and soda would be good <laughs> oh yeah, okay you know 10 30 in the morning yeah we, yeah, we can probably arrange this <laughs> And uh, that's what he did, plonked himself down there, and uh, you absolutely could have 
looked at all the looks of aghast, agape, and uh, total amazement from people arriving at the event before it kicked off at, at noon. Hmm. Suddenly, seeing Pat Troughton himself, who only had previously, his only previous public event, as far as I know, in the 80s, had been the, um, the Longleat oh, event yes. back in April. Yeah. So it was quite staggering, and he really did decide he was he was enjoying it. And um, I think the best story, and please forgive me if this story has been told more than once, decided he wanted to stick around and, and, and see the, the war games, because, again, he hadn't seen it since transmission. Mm. So, you know, as you do with the National Film Theatre, you lag a couple of tickets, find a, one of the few spare seats in NFT1, and he went in and, and, and sat down with his wife. And the story goes that there was a, two or three fans sat in the, in the row in front of him who were, you know, watching the programme on screen with rapt attention. But they couldn't understand why they were seeing, hearing the same voice behind them talking about the show and the same, as the same voice that was going on on the screen. <laughs> and one of them sort of turned round to look <laughs> and nearly sort of fractured his neck when he had, we did the perennial sort of Tex Avery double take when he suddenly realised that sat behind him was, uh, was Patrick Troughton. So it was uh, it was it was just marvellous to see that and to see the reaction to him, mm. and in in a way it was the sort of you know apotheosis of fandom to see the one doctor that had never ever well what <laughs> the ones that were still alive out of the five that were around at the time suddenly just turning up and just being there for people and quite merrily uh, signing autographs until quite in late in the evening so that was a it was just amazingly wonderful to see and it was amazing that he then sort of did um, i think it was one of the panopticons in in brighton for the for the appreciation society quite a few in america and uh, then of course you suddenly got to 1987 and suddenly he wasn't around anymore so you felt so very privileged to have had that slice of his time that he gave to Doctor Who for the for brief four years or so that he gave it. So, you know, for that, when you think, wow, those are these are special people in my eyes, that's why he was top of my list when uh, when I got your invitation, Richard, to say, well, you know, who would you like to pay a little homage to? He was definitely one of them. Yes, yes, and I, I guess great that, you know, however late it was in his life that, that he finally got to understand in those maybe you know, last three or four years how much appreciation people had for him and, and for his performance as a doctor. Yes, he. that was the thing that he said afterwards when, I mean, I, I, again, I got to see him a couple of times afterwards, once even at his house, and he just sort of, he, he, he was one of those that really was heartened by the warmth that came back from mm. from fans he, uh, he he didn't really give away much of himself but he just thought it was so nice that the fans were always so warm and so generous to him and so whenever he did any of the limited events that he did do he made a big effort to to dig out the uh, the, the costume whenever he could and to turn up and sort of you know give a second doctor performance certainly whenever he was on stage and certainly whenever he was sort of you know doing the, the double acts with with john pertwee where you know, he'd be the disruptive one and <laughs> would be the more precise one and you're thinking well that's 
what you're seeing there is essentially the three doctors revisited which yeah. you'd always love to think was kind of what they a little bit of business they worked out between themselves um, and it was certainly very evident that he was giving a, a very affectionate performance for all those people that he was so grateful you know paid money came along and and saw these events and and sometimes you know queued up for incredibly long time in the hope of getting an autograph or, or a photograph Hmm. Yeah, I, I recall at one of the events I went to. I think it was it, it was probably that the, the, the year that he died, but but afterwards, that that panopticon that the um, Evil of the Daleks was played for the first time, having having recently been found. And I remember the atmosphere in the hall that day. You could have cut with a knife. It was you know people were absolutely wrapped by that twenty five minutes. Yeah, so it, it, it was a shame that he that he couldn't have been around to, to see that because. Yeah, it was it was so well received and, and and such a big thing for a lot of fans to be able to to, to look back uh, again. I guess at that, just one episode of that story, but nonetheless, back into his era. Well, it's always one of the great elements of the the rare rare occasions where something comes back when an episode's recovered, is you're hoping to try and find someone who was involved with the story to come along and to see it. You know, in yeah. a way, it's sort of fans saying thank you for what was originally lost which has been recovered and now you know here's your chance to see it again mm. and then hopefully get an opportunity to say well you know, now you've seen it again what do you think and uh, you know even with Troughton he says oh yeah never used to watch it at the time never had the time to watch it it's fun watching it now though <laughs> do you think yeah too flipping right it is <laughs> yeah okay well uh, should, we, should we move on to your next person which, which i think was douglas camfield very much it was it was douglas camfield you know trying to look at behind the, the, the cameras as well as in front of it uh-huh. uh, I, I guess like so many of sort of my generation of fans almost the first thing we got exposed to that talked about behind the scenes stuff on doctor who was the the book that was put out in 1972 the making of doctor who by by yeah. Malcolm Holt, terence dicks and among the chapters was one that told you who were the people who made it, the producers, the script editors, the writers and directors. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of people, you were initially a little bit confused about what a director was and what a producer was. You know, one pays for it and the other one actually makes it come alive on the screen. So you started looking down this list and thinking, gosh, you know, there's some names there that I may not know them in person, but my God, look at the ones they've done and mm-hmm. how many of those ones that they had done. You suddenly realize, gosh, they're, they're ones that, that I really, really liked. You were looking down and seeing the, the, the Daleks master plan. You were looking at, at the invasion. Yeah. And Inferno, and thinking, gosh, there's Camfield's name again. So he he was someone that started, that, that piqued my interest really quite early on. I know we tried to to get him for some of the early Dwas conventions, but of course he was someone who was just <laughs> continually and almost phenomenally busy because he he, yeah. he was working so much in those days. And then as you started to hear the stories from people like John Pertie about, oh, my God, you know, ran the whole thing with absolute military efficiency. He told you up to run up a gasometer and walk around the top. Well, you know, you saluted longest way up, shortest way down, and then climbed the tower and, and, and did the walk. And you're thinking, wow, there's the, the, you know, he's one of those ones that, that his name keeps coming up when, when people are talking about it. And... Again, I think it was the National Film Theatre event. Was uh, I'd put forward the idea of you know, if we can get Douglas Campbell, wouldn't that be good? Mm. 
and sure enough, he was the one who must have been, what's the phrase, between engagements, because he did yeah. say he would he would come along. And again, I think he duly turned up. I think he, I think he, from memory, I think he did this the, the Saturday, and he came in. And my God, you know, he he almost looked Hollywood because he had this great mane of white hair and the, uh, and the beard, yeah. but he had a quality that is quite extraordinary in, in people. In that, doesn't matter who you were. He was capable of talking to you as though he'd known you all his life and you felt you'd known him all your life mm. and his life. And there was never this kind of awkward exchange between people getting to know, particularly if you're an interviewer and an interviewee. He was just all enthusiasm. He, he, he would ask you about what you know, what interested you. Why, why was I a fan sort of thing? And he had this a, a, just extraordinary generosity of, of personality you could understand why a lot of the actors had not only great respect for his talents but also huge affection for him as a person because he really was one of those few directors that crossed the boundaries between either being a good actor director who could you know, really enthuse and get the best out of, uh, of the cast or the technical directors, the, the sort of Morris Barrys of this world, who were you know tremendously good yeah. technicians and knew exactly what they wanted, how they wanted to frame the shots, but would get incredibly impatient with actors if, if they if they didn't hit those marks exactly. Mm. I think Campbell was, was was one of those because he spent so much time. I mean, I know some of his floor plans and notes and things have been have been published uh, down the years. But you, you almost kind of were expecting to see someone who's far more like a, a military figure than this sort of um, affable, amiable, very trendy-looking chap that came into the NFT. And then, uh, again, had no hesitation when we said, oh, would you care to introduce, uh, the, I think it was the crusade that, that he introduced. Uh-huh. You know, hearing the stories for the first time about, uh, the, it was, I think it was the only, one of the few scripts he ever said he hardly ever changed a word on because it was so absolutely pitch perfect he could work with it for the first time and then from the first from the first moment and um, basically gave such huge praise to 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 david Whittaker for, for scripting it mm. and of course was very was incredibly generous to all the people like his like Victor Zutelis, who handled what he called the second unit stuff, like getting the the film sequences with um, William Russell's hand being coated in the with the, with the honey and the ants. <laughs> you think, oh right, okay. So you, you know, you're not just grabbing that that bit for yourself. You really are saying that uh, yes, I might have planned it and set it up, but I trusted Victor's to go away and do it. And in the end, I believe it was his hand that was ultimately covered in ants. When I think uh, William Russell declined to actually do that stunt, but again. Campfield was absolutely, totally self-deprecating, even to the point that he, again, asked if he could go in and just come and see a few more of the episodes, mm. just so he could see uh, some of the work that not only he'd done that he hadn't seen uh, in recent years, but also looking on a couple of other episodes as well to see what uh, other people thought of stories that were at the time were highly regarded and, and thought nothing of just going into the auditorium finding a spare seat and plonking himself down next to to, to people who <laughs> were quite thrilled to have uh, the director of the program sat next to them and, and happy to answer their questions when the episode ended sure. so again he was such a huge loss when mm. suddenly we lost him uh, very shortly after the the nft event i don't know that he did anything more but it was um it was 
a bit like when we lost Ian Marty, you just suddenly thought, gosh, suddenly just not around anymore. And that was, yeah, yeah that, that's the thing we all live with now. You're suddenly looking at the list of people who've fallen off the top of the escalator. And sadly, that list uh, you know, gets longer every year. Yeah. I mean, it is remarkable, I think, with Douglas Canfield, how there isn't a duffer on his on the list of the, the stories that he was involved with. Uh, you know, they, they're they all very well appreciated. We looked at the crusade on this podcast, I think, six months or so ago, and we were all taken by what a, what a great story it was. I mean, you know, even having to cope with a couple of reconstructions, you know, the, the quality of it came very clearly through. Uh, and I think it's probably one of those stories that's that's been disregarded a bit because... The, the 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 episodes are missing, but yeah, a, a really good early story from from those first couple of years. Well, I think he was one of those people. I, I've heard this this phrase used a couple of years ago. Didn't quite understand it to begin with, but I, I think I do now. He said Douglas Campbell was one of those people that really got Doctor Who right from from the start, mm-hmm. and by got he he understood what the how the format could work. To deliver an exciting piece of uh, of television in a slot that generally wasn't known for delivering exciting television, you know, you've only got to go back and look at what was being done, and perhaps on on ITV or or, or or the BBC children's serials, to realise that they were very worthy and hugely enjoyable, but they were missing that sort of action adventure element that. The Americans were, were making great strides with you look at what was happening in America when they were starting to ditch video in favor of making dramas and increasingly some of their comedies on, on film and of course delivering much slicker sharper more energetic productions as a result of that yeah. you know the BBC of course you know, didn't go down that route for many many years but Douglas Campbell was always one of those ones I think had a, a Maybe it was probably through hard, it was through hard work as well as intuition, made the shooting of the programs work in as near to a film capacity as you could, when you're in a five camera studio with with, with the occasional film inserts. Mm. It, it's not easy to do, but you even look at things like you know the Blake Seven he did or something like that, and and you can see that there's a lot more of a of a filmed look to his mm. studio stuff. And perhaps a lot of other directors, even though they are tremendously talented directors in their own white and can get amazing performances out of their, their cast, you know, D- Douglas, I think, could make it look as though not only were you getting good performances, but it was looking technically very arresting. He really sort of understood how to give Doctor Who a good dynamic. And the fact that he worked, you know, in, in some cases, on some of the early first season and second season stories so much, even before he got his formal first directing yeah. credential with Planet of Giants, you can think he's already getting that the programme part of that really good start that some of the other, you know, got it directors have managed as well. Mm. And I think that's why, on balance, you could see why Doctor Who's ratings were much better than anything else that had occupied a children's slot before and, and largely since. Because in a way they were they were approaching it like it was full adult drama, and uh, we, we were bringing their their expertise in, in in that field to to bear on a program at a time when it could easily have slipped back into being a lot closer to say, um, well I suppose Pathfinders in Space is the nearest immediate comparison from that era. Mm. <laughs> 
Canfield stuff looked much more like what was being attempted on the ITC film series, where yeah. they were working on film. And it was a very rare, very rare talent you could do it. Uh, again, you suddenly just felt your jaw drop when you heard that he wasn't uh, mm. wasn't around anymore. Sure, I, I, I remember when Weber Fear came back. I mean, those of us who didn't see it <laughs> first time round were perhaps a little worried about um, episode four and what we were going to see in terms of that uh, the army attack on the Yetis, but actually a f- fantastically staged and uh, and re- really held up over the years that that particular sequence yes indeed uh, again you all you can think of is what might have been if if doctor who had been allowed the incredible privilege of being made as a as a film series hmm. um i think you look at when when they attempted to do i think it was maygray the rupert davis maygrays when uh, they really made a con- concerted effort to try and do a studio-mounted show, but with the, the, the signal deliberately slightly degraded to make it look more like the film inserts. It Technically, it doesn't look too bad, but because the direction is a little bit more stagey when you get to the studio scenes, it doesn't quite hit the mark in the same way as you'd, if you turned over to the other side and watched something like you know, No Hiding Place or something like that does. Mm where you've got uh, the advantage of, uh, of the flexibility of film. Yes. All we can do is you know, compare, you know, you look at Inferno, thinking the Barry Letts bits, the, the, the Douglas Canfield bits, and that Barry did such a tremendous job in following Douglas's yeah. notes that, in, in a way, Barry stepped up to the mark and uh, delivered us uh, probably one of the finest uh, John Pertwee serials and probably one of the finest serials of the, uh, of the classic era. Yes. Yes, I guess that we've only got um, Spearhead, haven't we, on on film that gives us some sense of, of what it, of what that that um, season might have been like if if they could have continued in that vein. Although obviously it was it was a one off. If they could have conquered the the business with a slightly dodgy sound, and that, that's the only yeah. thing I think that Spearhead down is yeah. that. Uh, However, they recorded it. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, you're a long way from the days when you could bring all the artists in to sort of redub the the, the sounds and the, their vocal performances again. Mm. But uh, it'd be one of those things. You're thinking, gosh, if you could only have done it. Um, I remember asking Mark Ayers if it had been possible, and he just said, no. There's, <laughs> there's a lot I can do, but you can't make it sound like the sort of audio immediacy that you'd get if you mm. if you were doing it in the same way as they do Doctor Who nowadays. Mm. Yes, although I must—I mean, Mark's astonishing. I—I I, I can't believe, having seen the the re-released Power of the Daleks, that that soundtrack was recorded off a off a telly. I mean, it it just sounds fantastic. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it's it is amazing. I, we we had this conversation about the time when the Invasion was first released on BBC Audio as a, as a CD when when it was part of the original. Yeah, they were doing it by by volume, and. I listened to all of the invasion, and some of the episodes sounded so much better than the rest. And funny enough, the ones that sounded the best were episodes one and episodes four. <laughs> the two that were missing, yes, Mark did say, he says, well, yeah, we figured out that actually some of what Graham, I presume it's Graham Strong, some of those recordings were much higher strength, much higher gain, hmm. and, so, and and they were much better than the sound that you were getting off the film prints from the, from the episodes that existed. Hmm. Memo to self for next time, try and, <laughs> uh, try and make, it all, make it all match, which uh, yeah. I, 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 have, I haven't actually bought them, the, the Invasion, since it was 
re-release as part of the the volume series that they've done by BBC Audio. Mm-hmm. But you'd love to know if the, if, if if the sound is better now on the on those episodes. I must get around to doing it sometime. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so should we move on to your your next choice? Oh, to Ian Schoons. Yeah. Yes, which is a nice segue because. Uh, Having just spoken about you know how Mark Ayres is one of those that spends an incredible amount of time investing in making the the audios best, if not better than they were originally, I was very impressed to find that that was a quality that I so came to respect in in Ian Schoons. Like most fans, I'd your main conduit into BBC visual effects was was Matt Irvin, who yeah. is you know, one of the great communicators on the subject of, of effects and was, you know, wrote the marvelous book. But even Matt always acknowledged that he learnt an awful lot from being an assistant to Ian Schoons. I thought, gosh, again, like a lot of people, who is this guy? And again, saw his name on on film credits down the years. Of course, you appreciated that uh, that he did a lot with with Hammer. And Hammer is a brilliant fit for Doctor Who because it was a it was a studio that could m- uh, mount miracles with almost negligible budgets, mm. very very small budgets sometimes, mm. and yet uh, you looked at what they what they achieved, and when the opportunity came around and I was finally able to to, to go and see Ian for the first time, is that you got this appreciation of somebody who you know, he, he lived, <laughs> slept and dreamed effects. He was he was really one of those that wanted to push the art of special effects much further than than was really possible in the in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. And Doctor Who held a special place for him because he he admired what the program was, and he thought, oh, if we could only get it to the standard of what people like uh, Jerry Anderson had, had managed again on film, mm. and you always admired his recollections of you know seeking out people like Graham Williams and saying, look, you know, can we do these effects on 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 film at, at Bray? Because then we can. It sounds a bit terrible to say you're, you're cutting out the unions, but in in a way you 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 you're not going to be under such restrictions as you would be doing it in an electronic studio or even at mm. BBC Ealing, that they could spend time setting up shots, getting in professional miniature cameraman like um, Nicky Alder, who was probably you know he, he used to like things like Space 1999, and the fact that he was able to achieve that success with. Yeah, initially, things like Underworld, you know, not a story that's hugely regarded by most people, but you look at the, the spaceship scenes mm. and the, the shots of the spacecraft coming out of the formative planet, you know, suddenly, boom, you know, there's a really amazing looking uh, model sequence, mm. which paved the way for when he did finally get an opportunity to do something under almost total control, which was all the miniature work for City of Death, which oh, yes. even now is still held up as, uh, as something that could pass muster in teaching uh, students these days about how to, to, to light, how to shoot, how to how to engineer model work. Mm-hmm. And it, it was going to see, on the occasions I was able to see him, it was, it was, it was an absolute university course in how you shoot miniatures. You know, the business about having a longer foreground that you could track a 
camera along, which means you didn't have to have such a bigger tabletop model in the background because you were fooled by thinking the set was much bigger than it was when in reality it was two sets. The camera was close to the one, the foreground one with, with some of the rocks and props and things. And the, the, the background where the spider ship was, was, was much, was, was further away, but your eyes invisibly filled in the, the lengthy gap that made you think this set was just so much bigger. It's mm. all that stuff. You know, he learned from people like Derek Meddings, who is still to this day regarded as one of the great founders of, of British visual effects shooting. And you know, Schoon's brought that quality to the BBC. And you look at what he what he did for, for Doctor All, you know, it was, it's, again, it was a hallmark of quality when you saw Ian's name on the on the credits mm-hmm. uh, i think recently like a lot of people you finally got your hands on the season 14 doctor who collection much delayed doctor who collection box set. yeah and you look at the sort of wide complexity of shots the special effects stuff that was done for it it's not as quite in your face as say city of death but the, the sequences of the of the sparkler shooting through the air and searing across the water and electrocuting the the, uh, the, the fishermen, it's it's quite it's quite startling, in mm. in terms of how uh, and how you you don't have to suspend your disbelief in, like you do in some shots when you think oh dear they should have done that on film and not in not in the video studio and uh, again trying to get enough of clout for the effects technicians to to try and get a a say on some of the planning processes for the for future seasons and uh, as he did with graham williams last season was to try and push the the effects budget but of course (laughs) i think my one my one problem with with graham williams i thought he was he was very good at using his budget quite wisely when he got an opportunity but it was Mm. quite clear that as you got towards the end of the season the money was clearly starting to run out uh, which is why compromises uh, seem yeah. to happen much more so in the in the latter stories of, of Graham's seasons than they were in the early part of it, um, and that and that's a shame because um, you look at how people like Philip Hinchcliffe had encouraged Ian Schoons with things like Pyramids of Mars to push the envelope, but. Yeah. Um, Hinchcliffe would never compromise on on quality, and that's why you know things like Wang Chang, Robots of Death, they're still firing and all right, perhaps spending money like drunk sailors. But <laughs> Hinchcliffe's argument to his bosses whenever he got told off or to uh, production unit managers was, "Look, I'm bringing in the ratings here, and mm. the ratings are are pretty incredible." Mm. And I think if Graham had had the same sort of clout and confidence to do that with his bosses, uh, I think mm. you. you you might have seen the same sort of hallmarks of quality visible in the towards the last shows of any of his seasons as you did at the beginning when uh, he was able to give more money to, say, Peter Logan for um, Destiny of the Daleks or uh, even the model work on Creature from the Pit. You suddenly think that's what the creature should have looked like, not the creature <laughs> that kind of everyone sort of remembers until yeah. occasionally you see the, the odd match shot that's, that, that, that's in there. So I, th- I think you know, it's because you had people like Ian Schoons pushing that, pushing visual effects as a as ability to contribute beautiful material to Doctor Who. Is why we tend to remember some of those sequences that those people who were around at the time, and, and there's others. You know, you look at things like uh, Terror of the Zygons when the 
the Saigon ship blows up. It's a, yeah. it's a beautifully executed sequence that the ship blows apart in exactly the way that you think it should. And uh, again, it's following that Thunderbirds motif of you set things off small and then build large and ultimately <laughs> cover the camera with it with the big explosion at the end. Mm. All down to those people who were such pioneers of, um, of effects work in the in, in the sixties. Who then went on to bring all that work when the BBC Visual Effects Department was expanded in the 70s. And you look at the talents you had working there, they were quite mm. impressive. And but yes, Schoons was another sad one when uh, when he went upstairs and we suddenly lost you know, one of the grandfathers of, of effects work on Doctor Who. Hmm. Okay, well, thanks for telling us about him. I think you also wanted to talk about Dennis Spooner. Yes, I, I almost think, uh, I can't remember whether it was you, Richard, that suggested it or whether it was uh, Robbie Dunlop when, after he'd done the TARDIS piece. But uh, again, Dennis Spooner, he was taken from us very, very early on. Yeah. And thus he did some more interviews with other fanzines. But his uh, his piece for Doctor Who magazine, I think it was issue 50, I mean, Doctor Who monthly in those days, 56. Mm is about the only time he ever came along and did a formal interview. I know he, I think he had done the, the Dwas, one of the Dwas socials that year. And I think that's when I think I got a chance to pounce on him and say, look, you know, it would it be possible to set up a, an interview? And I think I did it in something like June, June 81. Mm. And I think he's unique in that he was the one person that said, oh, well, shall I come down to you then? I'm only up the road in Potter's Bar. I was living in Hendon at the time. And thought, mm, yes, OK, yes, no, no problem whatsoever. It's, it's wonderful you know, every time I see those, those photographs of Dennis Spooner, I'm thinking, gosh, that's my parents' uh, lounge that's being photographed. <laughs> um, and I, did, I, I suppose that it was he, he was up against no time schedule whatsoever. So even though my C90 cassette only ran to 90 <laughs> minutes, he happily carried on. And um, like most writers of his ilk, of course, uh, he, he, as soon as you opened up a, a bottle of scotch or something like that, well, you know, he'd, he'd talk for hours. And mm. uh, again, going back to what we were saying earlier about a writer who got Doctor Who right from the start, yeah. I think there's absolutely no doubt in my mind whatsoever that he was that almost that unique writer that straight away could hit the ground running with a very good vision of what he saw Doctor Who as, as being. I can only illustrate it in a way by comparing it to, to David Whittaker, the writer who I never had the privilege of, uh, of meeting. He's one of my three people, along with Roger Delgado and William Hartnell. I was so sad I, I never, ever got to, mm. to, to meet and talk to in, in person. Because I think both of those guys, Whitaker and Spooner, they understood Doctor Who in a way possibly that even Sidney Newman hadn't mm. visualised. David Whitaker, because, because he brought that great moral strength of purpose to both the Doctor's character and to the, to the storylines... Yeah. If you look at, I think, what Whitaker, and it is only what you think they've contributed to it, but you can sort of see Terry Nation as the great ideas man, but it needed someone with Whitaker's discipline to, to, to forge the, the dramatic elements into it, to bring the moral context to it, mm. to bring that strong sense of moral purpose to the Daleks that's that Verity Lambert then went back to Sidney Newman when he had his huge hissy fit about seeing the 
bug-eyed monsters to say that you know look at them this is this is what they are uh, uh, you know survivors of a terrible nuclear war they've been nearly, nearly driven mad by living in their own tin cans and that's mm. why they are the way that they are and all of that you know strong high moral grounding which i think a lot of it was was david whittaker's because he was adding those sequences in there not and not just to the science fiction ones but to the historicals he yeah. brought so you look at his revisions to to marco polo and he really got all of that sort of way to make the, the series not just obeying the original format but adapting that format ever so slightly to, to soften the doctor's character to make mm. him more involved and more of a family with the with the people he'd kidnapped but the one thing i don't think david ever did in his year as a script editor was look too seriously at humor hmm. in the program hmm. you know you look at the first seven stories they are quite dry and although yeah. very worthy they don't have something that, that that makes your your lips curl up in a smile at the end hmm. all of that changes when you suddenly get to the reign of terror which you'd think initially think yeah oh, not another uh, bbc historical set in the french revolution i mean hadn't been too long since i think we'd had uh, was it triton was the was the one the bbc sunday serial set in the revolution but <laughs> even now you ju you can just listen to an audio and there's a natural and there's a sparkle that's in there. He, he he's always doing Shakespeare in places by, you know, getting you the comic jailer or something. Mm. There's a couple of good hysterical uh, exchanges between the, the other supporting cast. You know, he he's the original comic turn that's there to sort of break the action. Mm. I just reread the the article this this afternoon before coming on to talk to you, and he does talk about this. You know, the the, the dramatic W. Where you know you've got to write the big hook right at the beginning to get people interested, bit of exposition. Then when it gets to the point where it needs to g up, then you go for the next hook, or you then look to yourself thinking, "Oh, hang on, now we don't want to give away this, this away too much straight away. We, like, we might want to do that in episode three. Let's break it up with something a little bit sort of left of field, and mm. if you can have a comic exchange between the jailer and William Hartnell, well, you know, actors will go for it and." You know, Sure enough, though that those scenes you know, really are a point at which Doctor Who starts to, to turn itself around. And when Dennis became the script editor, you can see more of the humour being put into there. All of a sudden, Hartnell changes from being detached but caring yeah. to caring and twinkling. Mm. Um, that, I think, was the major change. And again from reading that piece you realize gosh it was conscious he was actually saying right you know there's going to become a certain time when people are going to expect us to work to a to a, to a given formula if we don't get all of those parameters in place and set up what doctor who can do you know we, we will be building a slightly narrative straitjacket for ourselves so he you know he, he went out on an edge and did the comedy with the romans and then did the really way out stuff with the web planet and then uh, again took some of Terry Nation's uh, huge ideas for the chase and perhaps a little bit maybe injected a little bit of humor I mean it, mm. even as a child I thought it was really strange that when you had the Morton Dill segment on, yeah. on the top of the uh, Empire State Building you're thinking isn't the Dalek just going to turn around and shoot him but it doesn't <laughs> 
but then it it works as a as a good little comic turn, mm. and certainly obviously did Peter Purvis's um, career absolutely mm. no harm. So you think, well, you know, that, that's another that's that's a really good layered approach. You you had to start with David Whittaker putting the framework in place. But you you also had to have Dennis Spooner, who had always ITC experience, coming in and saying, you know, we, we, we can do it a little bit like a film series. You might not be able to shoot it always like a film series, but we can do the stuff that they've you know that they've been doing for shows um, you know like the Avengers or even in Spooner's case, of course, he'd been doing it with Jerry Anderson and doing some of the lighter-hearted episodes of things like Stingray. So again, you think, gosh, we were so lucky to have him on mm. Doctor Who. And I think the proof was when, um, oh, you were talking about Power of the Daleks, and there's a reference in there. Of course, you know, Dennis Moon had to come in and yeah. rewrite the scripts when David Whittaker left for, for Australia. And in rewriting the scripts, A, he shortened them, you know, really doing a good script editor's job on that, mm. but also started to work with, with, with Patrick Troughton on, on sort of, well, you know, what would Troughton like to do with the role that would make yeah. it different to its predecessor it would have been all too easy just to have you know done a continuity of style and and, mm. and hired Troughton to play some of the more serious roles that of course he was perfectly capable of doing not just for the hammer but for the you know drama series like say Elizabeth R but he said no 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 you know we're going to do go with this cosmic hobo thing and you could see all the little bits of business that Spooner put in certainly to the to the first episodes, you know, the, the business where Trown's approaching the the Mercury Swamp, reading his book, he's not looking down where he's going, but suddenly he stops, turns a page, reads something, and it steps two paces to the left, and then Kate perfectly capably walks around the mm. the lake. All the sort of thing you can't, until the episode comes back, you're never ever going to see. But mm. it's it's good that that you can see that that, that was done to already deliberately start to forge a new role and a new personality for the Doctor and in a way uh, again further build on what had been done with the first Doctor and introduce that into the second Doctor which then sets that sort of rule set to say well when you change a Doctor then of course you can do this whole Mm. personality shift and that's another one of the great tropes of Doctor Who that's gone on that's achieved this huge longevity that the, that the program enjoys. And, you know, all of that work, all that groundwork was, was done by people like David Whittaker and, and Dennis Spooner, who, who just under, not only understood what made good drama for, for Doctor Who and good mm. drama for the BBC, but also how it could, it could have a, a long future. It wouldn't get to the point where you're thinking, oh, it's, it's running out of steam, we're, yeah. you know, we're losing the ideas. And I think it was only when, probably at the end of the 60s, when there was a problem with scripts and the, the, the scripts weren't coming in. Yeah. Obviously, they were engaging very professionally, good professional writers, but those writers didn't understand Doctor Who. And so mm. uh, when, when the scripts were coming in, you're thinking, yeah, some good ideas there, but it's just not gelling and things, things are going back and, and, and being rewritten and get to the point where they they were no longer even becoming workable hmm. and you think well okay so if you haven't got that great strength of of script writing from which to build from then your, your script editor is really going to struggle to be able to look at it devote the time to it to take it to to the planes that people like Terence Dix and Robert Holmes did when when they added their two major contributions to to Doctor Who in the in the 70s 
that enabled it to still stay fresh, still stay lively, and but it was still but still stay constant to what had originally been established back in the uh, in the sixties. So mm. again, huge great debts I think we owe to to people who are probably don't. These days, you know, because you don't hear from them, you'll, and you never will, uh, perhaps don't get the recognition that, uh, that I think they deserve. Sure, yeah. Interesting, I was just thinking about the the Crusades. I mean, you know, we talked about it earlier because it was um, uh, Camfield who directed it, but it's also, I suppose, the you know obvious collaboration between Whitaker and Spooner. Uh, and in the Crusade, the Doctor becomes almost a, the comic relief for, you know, a couple of episodes so, so I wonder if that's Spooner's influence on on Whitaker, or whether it's it's a reworking of the script afterwards. But, but yeah, you, you for that for the for the first time, well, okay, you, as you're saying, there's, there's there's the Romans, of course, but you but you've got that you know a, a real sense of of the Doctor finding the fun in the situation as uh, as well as the the strangeness, I suppose. Well, De- Dennis Spooner was a script editor. He 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 was always. Yeah. As you were saying earlier, put a bottle of scotch in front of him. He was always ones that would go to the bar with with the actors if he could. You know, whenever the rap time came, he'd very often be popping in there for a, for a noggin beforehand. Yeah. From the little that I personally know of David Whittaker, I think he was a little bit more distant. Right. It, it was interesting talking to his. I think June Barry was his first wife. I could be wrong, but she said, you know, David was very much a little bit. A man in the wrong time. He he was very formal, tended to be very precise in how he dressed, mm-hmm. and was very much slightly out of kilter with, with the modern world. He 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 you know he he could have probably played a church minister or something, but he 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 wasn't. He, he I don't think he was the great sort of social animal that that Dennis Spooner very definitely was, yeah. and. Um, yeah, I think David Whittaker's way of working out the script would probably have been to to have gone from a long walk and thought about it. She did say that uh, because David grew up around Barnes Common, that's why oh, it right. features so so prominently in, yeah. in the, the first book when you know, he's adapting the the, the start of uh, start of Doctor Who for uh, an audience that wasn't able to to see an ad- a, a, a novel of the of the Caveman story. So you're thinking, yes, you know, you can see there the person that has the moral imperative, and then the one that comes off and then fleshes it all out and gives it, it, it its great warmth. And mm. yes, it's um, you know you're lucky to have them in the succession that that you did, yeah. because I think you I think you needed Whittaker first to give it structure, framework, and purpose but it took Spooner to say look we can't just do this old story where we're trying to get them back home and every week they've got to get it locked out of the TARDIS we've got to yeah. start you know taking it off in a, in a wider direction where we're no longer worried so much about the must get back to the ship thing all of the time that's a nice way to see it changing but in a very positive way sure Okay, well, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, again, uh, a very, a very fun hour um, talking with you about your memories and and. Uh, Which has been an hour, hasn't it? <laughs> oh, if you're still awake out there, well done, Pete. <laughs> well, no, I'm, 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 I'm sure, like like me, uh, the listeners will be will be wrapped with that. A, a, a lovely glimpse into into a time that you know, sadly, was just just I guess just before um, I was around. But uh, but yeah. I think we're so lucky just to have those first two seasons. Yeah, and I think and you know, right, Marco Polo is a big absence, but you do think all the rest. It just paints such a wonderful 
picture of mm. why the show has the longevity that it does, where you can see the occasional little weak points, like the, the Sensorites, where I think there's obviously much more Whitaker in the latter episodes than the first, the, uh, the early ones, and uh, the fact that we've got those to enjoy now and hopefully forever. Yes. We'll get Polo back one day. My God, just hoping I won't be in a box by the time it happens. <laughs> Well, we keep we keep hearing stories, don't we? We we, we it, it would be fantastic to see it if if it does eventually come back. Well, there's hard, there's hardly a month in the year with a vowel in it where you don't get at least one story. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, look. That, that thanks ever so much for joining us again, Jeremy, and um, for sharing those thoughts with us. And you'll always be welcome on this podcast if you if you have uh, anything else to tell us uh, in future. But 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 thanks very much for now. As the old phrase goes, the trouble with the good ideas, you never know when you're going to have one. <laughs> Richard's been. It's a great pleasure as always. Cheers. <laughs>